Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. It's Heard Tell Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. It is Friday, December the 10th, and we're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you for taking time to listen a little bit. We're going to cover some of the things going on in the news cycle while trying to turn down the noise on them and get to the information that we need to discern our times. Plenty of things going on on this Friday as we finish off this first full week in December as we careen towards the end of the year. And I hope y'all's holiday season is going well wherever you and yours are. Uh, We hope you're well and well fed. Uh, Today is the day that uh, America will be honoring the late Bob Dole. Uh, He will be having his uh, official funeral uh, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. this morning and later more services in his native Kansas. Uh, We're going to talk about that a little bit. We're also going to talk with Eric Garcia. He's the congressional reporter for The Independent. Uh, He's written a couple different pieces uh, since Senator Dole died, specifically talking about his legacy for disabled folks and what that means and uh, the history of getting disability notice from people like the World War II vet generation, like Bob Dole and other senators who were wounded veterans, and how that affected policy, and it started affecting uh, public awareness for disability. So we're going to talk to him about that a little bit later on. Uh, Also, an interesting piece of history that's interactive. We're going to get to that. Uh, But first, let's start with uh, anytime uh, mouthwash is trending on social media, it's probably not a good thing. (laughs) If If you looked at your social media feed over the last little bit and noticed that Listerine was trending, uh, it is because it got drug into the coronavirus debate. In this case, uh, Senator Ron Johnson uh, decided that he would make some comments about how Listerine kills the coronavirus uh, and COVID-19 specifically. Uh, He was in a town hall and made some comments to these effects, but uh, the reaction to this and the way people are treating it, especially online, especially on social media, is kind of telling because we just don't know how to talk about coronavirus and COVID-19 even two years into it. It's pretty amazing how these things work. Uh, Consider for a minute, two years into this coronavirus, and we still don't really know how to talk about it in the media environment, especially in the cultural and political environment where this gets really heated in a hurry. Now, first of all, let's just start here. I'm for everybody using Listerine and mouthwash. Everybody should do that. Uh, It's a fine product. The old school Listerine, my grandfather used it almost every day, and he died just short of 90 with all his teeth, but one that got knocked out. That's not a paid endorsement, just laying that out there. I prefer Cool Mint, just personally. But everybody should use mouthwash. Now, is mouthwash going to stop a disease that has killed what we're approaching 800,000 people? 
Well, of course, anytime you're killing germs and things like that, it's a good thing. But what we really need to talk about here is how, once again, something minor blows up into the media discourse and it becomes an avatar for people to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about before. Now, on its face, we don't think of mouthwash as something that's going to cure a disease. There's probably some studies, and there's a few if you want to go online, where they talk about how that does kill germs and things like that. But it's not a replacement for uh, things like vaccines. It's not a replace for health precautions. But let's just have some common sense here. Mouthwash and common sense things like that that are good for your overall health will play into being more healthy when it comes to something like COVID-19. That doesn't replace good medical knowledge on something that is rapidly evolving like COVID-19. It doesn't replace something like vaccines, and it doesn't replace some of the therapy stuff that you would have to do if you did contract COVID-19. It doesn't replace making common sense decisions about not being around people who are infected and things like this. Um, it seems like we've just lost our minds when it comes to common sense discussion over this disease. Now, some of it's because people have had to deal with things like their works getting interrupted, their schools getting interrupted, their lives getting interrupted. We've had to have a debate over things like government and education that a lot of people have never had to have before because the crisis of the COVID-19 forced it up into our face. People can't send their kids to school. All of a sudden, they're paying a lot of attention to school. Governments putting restrictions on people, whether they're uh, mask restrictions, uh, lockdowns, which isn't a great term because we haven't really had full-blown lockdowns. We've just had certain things closed. Um, things like this put issues that we put on the back burner we don't really pay attention to or we only give lip service to. And they tend to put them back up in our face and then we have to deal with them. So something like mouthwash trending because of COVID-19 seems utterly ridiculous. But when you think about it, it actually makes sense because it's easier for us to yell and scream about mouthwash and we can take political priors and put it onto whoever's talking about mouthwash and away we go. If you really pay attention to the Listerine thing, you'll see it's just the same thing that lots of folks have been saying over and over and over again. It's just the new pop-up trend on social media gives us an excuse to talk about it again. How should we deal with these matters? Well, all health issues we have a bit of an information problem. There's been a long-running joke before COVID-19 about having WebMD, and that's a website, and I'm not knocking the website, but you can go on WebD and you can read about any condition you want. You can read about symptoms. The problem with that is if you don't have a basis of medical knowledge, you can pretty much talk yourself into having whatever disease or ailment you think you might have. Uh, more information without more knowledge is not always a great thing. And a lot of that's been going on in COVID-19. One thing we need to have here is just a little bit of old-fashioned humility. Um, even the best scientists and doctors we have don't know everything about COVID-19 because it's an evolving thing. It's an emerging thing. And now we have variants and things like that. It takes years sometimes to research diseases, and we didn't have years in this case. So the research is chasing the narratives and the experts. The experts need to have a little more humility in the way they talk to people because people can Google in real time what they're saying to find out if it's right. And they need to have some humility to just say, look, this is the best information we have now. And then when something changes in a couple months, they need to just admit it and go, look, it's different information now. This is why we're saying it differently. They don't need to play word games. They don't need to try to play CYA. They need to just be honest with people. You're always going to have people that will tear them up for being honest, but it's better for them to be honest, especially if they're in positions of trust, than to just go mouthing off 
And then you end up looking like a hypocrite or worse. It looks like you've lied to the people about something. And then you don't have anybody's trust. That's no good for anybody. So a little bit more humility that we don't all know this, even if we have doctor's titles or things behind our names that say we should. The way we deal with these things is important. On the base level, your health has still got to be your responsibility. When you're talking about the debates over the vaccines, when you're talking about the debates over COVID-19, you should be able to talk to your own medical provider. Now, this brings up a whole nother mess because there's people who don't have access to good health care. There's people that have health care that they'd rather not have or they're having to pay too much money for. And now you have a whole nother layer of mess on top of all this stuff. We forget that these COVID debates are not in a vacuum. People's kids are being affected with the schools. People's jobs are being affected by the economy. And people's health care situations are affecting whether or not they're getting good information. Personally, I'm a VA patient. I get my health care through the Veterans Affairs. I talk to my doctors in my primary care. I have complicated health issues. When I talk to them about the vaccines, they just were very honest with me. They're like, we don't know. We don't have data sets for people like you that have abnormal physiology and complicated medical history. We went round and round with them some because I have those sorts of questions. Originally, they weren't real thrilled on me getting the vaccine because they didn't know whether or not how my body would react to it, because there's just no data on it. There's no information. Eventually, I did get the vaccine. I got it because I just played basically the averages. I looked at it. Well, if I get COVID with my health situation, that's going to be really bad. If I'm vaccinated and get COVID, it should lessen the disease. And the lowest odds of something bad happen was to take the vaccine and have some kind of adverse reaction. So I took the vaccine. But that was my choice through my medical providers and talking to them and trying to figure out what was best for me and my family and my personal health. And that's where this stuff needs to start. We should keep in mind that just because people are saying stuff online does not necessarily mean that's what they're doing in their personal life, especially the talking heads in media, because uh, they may be, for example, and not to call anybody out, but they may be going on rants about the vaccines when them and their family themselves are vaccinated and these sorts of things. And we should also be very critical of government officials that go on TV and do not do a good job talking to the American people like they're people instead of a problem to solve and damage and make a problem where there shouldn't be one because they're too busy being a star on TV than just putting out good information. These problems all need to start at the lowest level as far as the fix goes. Try your best to take care of yourself and your family. And then when you go on social media to discuss these things, like Listerine and COVID-19, we'll be able to keep our bearing a little bit better because we won't just be reactionary to everything. Crisis reveals things. And in the COVID-19 case, over and over and over again, during this COVID-19 crisis, it's revealing that folks just can't maintain their bearing and keep their head when the crisis is on. They want to be reactionary. They want to react to things. They want to be outraged, and they'd rather be right than try to get it right. And when you're dealing with a deadly disease that's approaching 800,000 dead in America and millions worldwide, we need to get it right more than be right. So take a little extra time when something like Listerine pops up. Don't just jump in the pool and start splashing around with everybody else. Take a minute, step back, and go, what is the better discourse and discussion to have here that will actually move the situation along? 
Is it just yelling about mouthwash or yelling at a senator or yelling at a government official or yelling at a talking head? Or is it taking that thing of going, well, me and my life, I understand how this works and we're going to do this. And then you can put that out on social media. May not trend. It may not get as many likes or dislikes if you're really into dislikes, but it'll be a lot healthier. And either which way, whether it's Listerine or another product, we should all advocate for better breath. We may not be able to solve COVID, but we can all work on that. Appreciate you all joining Hertel today for Hertel Radio for this Friday, December the 10th. Uh, we're going to talk about the legacy of Bob Dolsom, uh, this walkthrough tenement uh, interactive thing that Washington Post has. Fascinating piece of history we're going to talk about a little bit. That and much more coming up. Hertel Radio right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you probably heard on Sunday that uh, Bob Dole died. Bob Dole, former presidential candidate, longtime senator, uh, World War II veteran. Uh, he was 98 years old. He had been diagnosed with cancer back in February. Uh, so it was not an unexpected end. And at 98 years of old, you can't say that he didn't have a great run. Uh, but there's a couple aspects of Bob Dole's life that are pretty amazing. Uh, he was... He was permanently disabled in World War II. Uh, he was uh, wounded in the right shoulder and arm. It made his right arm uh, unusable for the rest of his life. It crushed his body so bad his collarbone actually got drove into his spine. Um, he was not expected to live, uh, but he recovered uh, through the VA, what we now call the VA system. And there's a very interesting thread throughout his life. Um, he was one of the most uh, recognizable disabled people in america for many many years he famously carried a pen in his right hand because his right hand wouldn't work and he has a complex political legacy of course depending on what you think uh he had the famous debate in uh in the 70s when he was uh gerald ford's running mate for vice president and a failed bid uh mondale famously called him a hatchet man and and bob Dole just kind of smiled at him he wore that proudly as a majority and minority leader for the Republicans in the Senate. He was known as very hard, uh, hard headed about what he wanted, and he usually got it. Uh, the jokes in his uh, remembrances was that his only line in most meetings was, do you have the votes or don't you have the votes? Very practical, uh, very much into I want what I want and we're going to get it. And then he would go from there. Um, but because of his experiences, he recovered in the same hospital uh, with some men that would become Democratic senators in the United States, oddly enough. And those relationships led him into some bipartisanship in ways that a lot of people never expected. Um, he was a champion for the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act. Uh, he was a champion for veterans affairs, obviously, for, for obvious reasons. Um, but one thing uh, that happened and always happens on social media nowadays is when somebody dies, they just throw it into whatever's going on. So the fact that he was a Republican and the fact that he was the only former Republican president uh, to endorse uh, Donald Trump during his reign, uh, he just kind of got thrown into all that. But his legacy is a lot more complex than just that. Uh, he was very much a company man when it came to his politics. He was a Republican. In fact, when he was asked about his endorsement of President Trump, he, he kind of joked it off with, well, I'm a Republican. What do you expect? Uh, he was from a different era. Uh, the 1996 election, he's running against Bill Clinton. 
remember you have uh, crotchety, uh, could be very short, uh, come off very harsh on television. Uh, Bob Dole against Bill Clinton, who's playing saxophone and going on MTV and all these sorts of things. You really had a cultural gap there between the next man up of the World War II generation uh, against the modern uh, things with Bill Clinton. And of course, we know things about Clinton now that were not widely known then, but that was the impression. Uh, Michael Siegel touched on this when we had him on the program yesterday. Uh, he had ability to laugh at himself. Uh, like a lot of very, very serious men, and he was very serious. Um, he was very, he always presented himself in a serious manner. He could take a joke and he had a, he had a pretty wicked and dry sense of humor uh, to the point that uh, after he lost that 96 election, he showed up on Saturday Night Live with Norm MacDonald impersonating him and arguing in as part of the skit, arguing with him that he wasn't doing the impersonation right, which was just a great little piece of video. Uh, I wrote about it in Ordinary Dash Times. I actually included uh, the embed of that video, which is pretty good, where he he says, check out my impersonation of Bob Dole. He goes, first of all, that's a bad impression of Bob Dole because Bob Dole doesn't do that. So that sort of thing. He could laugh at himself. But it's funny how life works out. Um, Bob Dole's knock against uh, President Clinton, of course, uh, was that he was too old for the presidency. Uh, at 73 years old, he is markedly younger than what uh, Joe Biden is right now. So it's funny how that works out. Uh, Jack Kemp, his running mate, was the insurance policy uh, as the younger option to the older uh, Bob Dole. Bob Dole outlived him. And uh, in something that was very tragic uh, and the cancer that killed Bob Dole, cancer also took Norm MacDonald from us, who impersonated him much, much too young a few months ago. And he outlived the man that impersonated him. And I wrote it like this. I said, and I'm quoting from Ordinary Dash Times, humor seems to be another complex part of this long varied legacy. I slept like a baby, he quipped about election night in 1996, talking about Bob Dole, when he fell short against President Bill Clinton, quote, woke up crying every two hours. He once told a meeting that his wife and then Transportation Secretary Elizabeth Dole should fill potholes with her biscuit recipe. It's so bad. Typically of his dry but universally well-timed humor, the passing of Norm MacDonald was marked by the former senator with a pitch-perfect Bob Dole will miss Norm MacDonald tweet playing off his habit of third person and the way that was the centerpiece of that impersonation. A man permanently disabled and left for dead early in life with every right to not accomplish anything. Bob Dole met his end after a near-century run. Such a man would need humor, along with a lot of guts and determination to do that. That same drive and ambition would lead him to some dark places policy and ideology-wise, and a long career in politics rarely leaves anyone with clean hands and a guilt-free conscience. The flaws, complications, and all, on the balance, America is better for having had such men as Bob Dole spend their lives serving her and our people. So when the first I thought of when I heard Bob Dole had shuffled off his mortal coil was to think of that tweet proclaiming Bob Dole would miss Norm MacDonald when the comedian had passed. I thought of him doing so knowing his own end was coming. He had been diagnosed with lung cancer back in February. Yet Bob Dole once again using humor with natural timing. Life is more about politics, even when your life has been politics, as Bob Dole well known, well knew from nearly dying before he got a chance to do either. Some things in life, like politics, are so serious you just have to laugh at them, including death. Life is just funny like that. Somewhere Sunday morning, I like to think, Bob Dole met with Norm MacDonald and they pointed at each other and simultaneously exclaimed that Bob Dole is Miss Bob Dole. And the two masters of dry wit had a good long laugh about it. 
Then the laughter trails off as they both realize Bob Dole is pointing at Norm MacDonald using Bob Dole's right arm. And then they laugh again even harder. It works just fine now. Heard Tell Radio, we're going to have Eric Garcia, who's written two different pieces about Bob Dole, his legacy, uh, both politically, but as a disability rights advocate, something Eric has written on a lot. Uh, We're going to have him on to discuss that uh, as the state funeral and remembrances for Bob Dole. And we'll talk to Eric Garcia about that right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thrilled to have you and get to talk to somebody. I love covering his stuff and I love reading his book that we'll talk about later. But uh, our friend Eric Garcia from The Independent. Uh, how are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Doing all right. Thank you very much for having me. You wrote not one but two pieces on the passing of the late Bob Dole. One of them was more political. We'll get to that one in a minute. But um, just legacy wise, you took an angle on it because you do a lot of writing and advocacy on this issue anyway. But how important in that time period, the post-World War II era, was it to have uh, people with disabilities like Bob Dole front and center in American politics? Because before that, and remember, this is the age where TV starts. This is the age where mass media yeah. starts. How important was that for the development of disability rights in America to have people like him? Yeah, I mean, I would argue it goes back all the way back to the Civil War. A lot of the uh, pensions and benefits, a lot of the things that become kind of enshrined later and are encoded in law started out because of veterans, because of disabled veterans during the Civil War. You see it again after World War One. Um, uh, you know, that's where we get the term basket cases from people who literally lost all their limbs um, and had to be carried around in a basket. So that was so. It, so disabled veterans have always, always been an integral part of uh, of advocating for disability rights that would, that would benefit all people with disabilities. Uh, then when it came to World War II afterward, I think what happened was it, there were so many, just because of the, 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 the length of the war and because unlike the Civil War where it was, you know, brother, literally brother against brother, this was, there's this kind of shared feeling of, um, these were people with common experiences. And you saw that with Bob Dole and Daniel Inouye and Phil Hart. They all recovered at Percy Jones Hospital in Michigan together. Uh, Phil Hart and Bob Dole were of co- uh, Phil Hart and Daniel Inouye were Democrats and Bob Dole was a Republican. So there was this shared feeling of there needs to be something done. There needs to be some kind of accommodations. And you also had a lot of these disabled veterans coming to Congress afterward. Uh, there were, around that time, from like the 1940s to the, to, from the late 1940s to the 1950s, you just saw a tidal wave of veterans who came back. And that, that, that wave doesn't just include disabled veterans, it includes JFK, it includes Richard Nixon. Uh, so, so I think that it was integral because this was a, this was an experience that was shared, not just by a very niche group of people. These were people who, you know, a large percent of the population went to war and understood the cost of war. So I think it was incredibly important. 
how do you put it? Because like somebody like JFK, who kept his health very private, although he had days even as president, his health was horrible. He couldn't walk most days on right. for a lot of not just his military injuries from World War II, but other health issues. Addison disease. Right. You have this sort of thing. But then you have people uh, like Bob Dole, like the senators who, you know, uh, when it's front and center like that, uh, they really kind of made people deal with this issue. And then, of course, their lawmakers, it just kind of went together like, hey, this has to be addressed because it's front and center for folks. Right. They could, you couldn't really ignore it. And I think it was incredibly important. If you remember during World War II, FDR, he wouldn't be photographed with his wheelchair. Right. Uh, and, and John F. Kennedy, you know, he had a back brace and he had uh, crutches, but he know, but, you know, and he got God knows loaded up with how many drugs um, to make himself seem healthier. But I think that it was incredibly important for people like Bob Dole or people like Dan Inouye to show their disability. Because, like, remember, like, one of the things I think about when I'm on the Capitol is I think, God, this place is really inaccessible. Um, I think about yes. all, the big, all the big doors or all the doors you have to push uh, to, to get through. Or I think about the places that are only accessible through stairs. And, like, even I was on the Hill yesterday. And I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, it's going to be, you know, I imagine for someone like Bob Dole who had like his, who couldn't use his right arm and a lot of mobility was, you know, compromised in his other, in his other arm. I think, man, he must have, he, he probably had a hell of a time getting around here. Uh, and even so it was incredibly important, but even then I think it's important to remember, think about it this way. Bob Dole was injured in 1945. The ADA wasn't passed until 1990. So that's what a full 45 years after he was injured, that it still took that long. And of course, there were laws like the Rehabilitation Act, and the, but that was Rehabilitation Act was like, what, 18 years to, uh, or, or like 28 years after World War II. Uh, the uh, Education for Handicapped Children Act was in 1975. So that was 30 years after. So it wasn't like it was a thing that happened overnight, even still with all these disabled veterans. It still took a hell of a long time. Yeah. And there's a cultural and a societal shift here, too, because like you were saying, the World War II generation drove a lot of this discussion in the 70s. Congress was almost 75 percent veterans. And then that number dropped down to very, very few. Nowadays, modern days, we're getting a new wave of veterans and we have disabled veterans and other disabled people in Congress now. That seems to be upticking. Uh, Do you see that we because you cover Congress? Do you see that maybe we'll have another wave of uh, advocacy and legislation because we do have this new wave? We have some real high pro uh, Senator Duckwork, uh, Congressman Mass, Congressman Baird, uh, Congressman Crenshaw, even because he has the eye patch because he's yeah. conscious about his glass. eye. These people are very upfront in things. Do you see that this could be like the the Bob Dole era where we can have maybe a new resurgence of recognition for these folks and what we should be doing for them. On top of that, you also have a lot of veterans who are willing to talk about their invisible disabilities. Yes. Like, uh, Congressman Seth Moulton, who has talked very openly about PTSD. Uh, and I think it's important to include those invisible disabilities as well as the visible disabilities. Um, yes and no. I think that you're seeing a lot of them now. You're seeing you're seeing a, a deluge of them because as the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are ending, you're seeing a lot of people say, "Hey, maybe you should run for Congress." And you see, but I I think also the difference, and I write about this in my my kind of long piece for the New Republic about it, is that it's kind of almost become a product of polarization. Uh, so the, the extent that you have. Uh, you have Dan Crenshaw attacking Tammy Duckworth 
Uh, I don't know from any of my experience if like there's like a disabled veterans club, like there was, uh, you know, you know, with NOA and Heart and like um, Dole or anything. I think partially it's just because the um, the caucuses are so siloed nowadays, and there's more of an incentive if you are a rising star to throw partisan invective uh, than there is to you know, stand up for the other person. Because like, what's interesting is that John Kerry, even it was different with with Vietnam veterans, John, Mc, John McCain and John Kerry defended each other. And John McCain was disgusted when the, when Saxby Chambliss' campaign did the Max Cleland ad uh, because Max Cleland lost three of his limbs. Who just recently died, by the way, for folks yeah, that don't yeah, know. Max, he just died, yeah. Uh, and he was the, the, the victim of a disgusting smear campaign. Uh, so it was important to uh, it was important then, but I don't think that there's that kind of comedy now as as polarization has happened, as redistricting has happened, and as as there's more of an incentive now, there's more of a reward for politicians to lob bombs on the other side than there is to hey we have this shared experience let's focus on this and let's uh, let, let, let's change this. Uh, these uh, these laws to, to 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 facilitate other people. I think that there's a little too much of that. Uh, there, there's there's it's become a product of partisan invective, unfortunately. Yeah, we're talking to Eric Garcia. The reason we're bringing this up is it's not just uh, disabled veterans in Congress or disabled members of Congress. According to the CDC, one in four Americans has some kind of a registered or recognized disability. Um, this is just something that's always been an issue, and it's always been an issue to try to get some. Uh, coverage and then policy to make uh, probable change for these folks. And when you have somebody like Bob Dole pass off the scene where they're not in front, it's like, okay, well, who's this next group going to be? And you're talking about the policy, the invective and the politics of it. Uh, where is some policy common ground that you can see that maybe we can get? Cause we don't have like a big ADA coming up anytime in the near no. future. I don't think this is all smaller stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. I think that what you're going to see on when it comes to disabilities, you're going to see more things on the state level. So for example, one thing that there might actually be some consensus on is with uh, sub ending sub minimum wage labor. So for those who don't know, uh, it sounds just as bad as what it's, but what I'm describing, there's a section of the fair labor standards act that allows for, uh, paying disabled people. It's the same clause that allows for tipped wages. It's the same, the same uh, that allows to pay disabled people below minimum wage. So one thing that you've actually seen is you've seen some Republicans pick it up. You saw Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, who is a disabled Republican, he uses a wheelchair, sign the legislation to, I think, if you do contracts with the Texas government, you can't pay disabled people submit below minimum wage. So that was a, that was a, a big deal. And, you know, I think that governor Abbott deserves a lot of credit for that. You've seen someone like uh, you've seen people like Kathy as diverse as Kathy McMurse Rogers and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez come out in support of ending some minimum wage labor. Uh, Kathy McMurse Rogers was part of Republican leadership until a few years ago. She might become ways uh, energy and commerce chairwoman if Republicans, or I should say when they take back the house in 2022, <laughs> it's looking like a bloodbath. Um, but I think that when you're, but because in Congress, it seems like a minimum wage increase would be a sub minimum wage labor raise would be had to be tied to a minimum wage increase generally. I think it'd be more likely to happen in on the state level. You're seeing similar movings in South Carolina, Kentucky, 
Um, you're seeing you're seeing it in a few other states that have just ended uh, some minimum wage labor on the state level. So I think that's really where the change is going to happen. I think you're also going to see what's really going to what's interesting is you're going to see I think if President Biden passes his Build Back Better agenda, which has $150 billion for home community-based care, which allows for disabled people to receive uh, receive care in their homes instead of nursing homes or institutions. There are a lot of states with Republican governors, and Republicans tend to, tend to be pretty in favor of home and community-based services, at least in the past they were. It was actually started by, under the, during the Reagan administration. So it'd be interesting to see how Medicaid services in... Uh, Republican states, even though Republicans don't support it, when they get that money, how are they going to distribute that? How are they going to try to clear the wait list? How they're going to try to clear the queue? Because right now, the wait list is somewhere around 820,000 people. You have parents putting their kids on the wait list when they're kids so that when they turn 18, they can get on it. So that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. We're talking to Eric Garcia on Hertel Radio. We're going to take a quick break and more with him. He's covering Bob Dole, the recent passing of him and talking disability rights. Uh, we'll be right back with him right after this. To Eric Garcia on Hertel Radio, a congressional reporter for The Independent, covers all kinds of things going on in the halls of power, which are mourning one of the, um, whichever way you want to put it, certainly a titan of Congress and the Senate for many, many years. Bob Dole has passed away. Uh, you've wrote about this in detail. Uh, you have a piece at the New Republic out. Uh, talk about, because Bob Dole does have a bit of a complex history. He w- We have the famous moment in the 70s, the, the debate with Mondale, where Mondale calls mm-hmm. him a hatchet man, and he almost he just smiles at him. He, he wore yeah. that proudly. Uh, but he was also instrumental on things like ADA, like other legislation. How did you go to parse out that kind of complicated history with somebody who very honorably served his country, obviously gave a lot to his country, both life-wise and physically, but also had some policy stuff that a lot of people found questionable? Yeah, I mean, I think that he was like a lot. I mean, he was taking into account he was from Kansas. So in Kansas has is just a solidly Republican state has a Democratic governor now. But uh, that was just because Kobach was the nominee in 2018, uh, Chris Kobach. But it's interesting because he I think very much growing up in the Dust Bowl, even before he grew, even before he became uh, even before he served in World War Two, being from being from Kansas during that time you learn a lot about individualism and you learn a lot about, you know, you kind of had to tough it out. Uh, but at the same time, he's, you know, I didn't get to write this, but other people have written about this. He signed welfare checks for his family or, or, or he saw, you know, so he, he learned about, he learned, I forget, there was one former speechwriter of his that there was a, there was a piece where he said like, he learned about collective responsibility without learning about collectivism. And he learned about community without, you know, obviously, this person to say that he learned about community without learning communism. So I think that he learned that. So he, he was a Republican through and through and he was, he was a Republican until the day he died. And he was, he was what I think many people would call in the business world, a company man. Uh, And I, 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 I think that's why, you know, he was before he was ever, you know, a nominee, he was RNC chairman. He was a Congressman. He was a, he was a Senator. 
he was uh, he was Gerald Ford's running mate because people didn't feel that Nelson Rockefeller was conservative enough. And then he ran for president three times, once against, you know, George Bush and Ronald Reagan, again against George Bush, and then again in 96 when he was the nominee. And I think that, so there was that, he was the company man, but I think also when he came to Congress, and because he knew people who were disabled like him, he met people who were Democrats, he met people like Republicans, I think that what I learned was that he was a conservative, no doubt, and he thought about how government could be used to con- to achieve conservative ends. And he very much saw the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and the Rehabilitation Act, and later on the ADA as a continuation of that, while not giving up what he saw as conservative values. I think the difference was, and I think that that also goes to why he actually did unlike a lot of people who talk about themselves being fiscal conservatives, he actually did care about fiscal conservatism. That's why when he was, uh, when he was, I believe, Ways and Means or Appropriations Committee Chairman, or Finance Committee Chairman, he raised taxes. You know, uh, he did the largest peacetime tax increase during the 1980s. Um, And it was because he cared about balanced budgets. Uh, And that and he was right. He, he was he was smart to do that. But there was a lot of invective and pushback because the right wing in America was starting to radicalize. And Newt Gingrich actually called him the tax collector for the welfare state. What's interesting is that that kind of took Dole by surprise because usually he was used to throwing those kind of uh, verbal lobs at, uh, at at people. And he was just like, wait, what the hell? Um, but but I think that what happened is that like he still believed in government and he still believed that government had responsibilities, even if it couldn't fix everybody's problems. And what happened is in the 19, late 1980s to the early 1990s, the GOP started to move toward a more, I guess what I call it in the, in, in the piece for the New Republic, I say the GOP became more strictly anti-government rather than using government to achieve conservative ends. And that is really, I think that he never really, I think he tried to strike that balance, but he was not always uh, successful. It seems to me reading your pieces that you've been writing about him and just reviewing Bob Dole's life overall, um, it, both his life and the discussion we've been having since his death on things like social media and commentary, this seems to be a pretty good little microcosm of kind of the, the difficulties when talking about things like disabled persons, because there's always that conflict of, you want to help somebody, you want to get them help, but you also want to let them have their identity and have their as much freedom as they can possibly have. This seems like this is all kind of fell under that in a lot of ways of like, okay, what's the role of government? What's the role of an individual to take care of themselves? Where's the line of people stepping in and helping them? These are all really complex issues that is always going to be at the heart of these disability issues, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting because, his, I, I go back to his maiden speech a lot because I think that was kind of his lodestar for a lot of ways. Um, in his maiden speech, he talked about exclusion. He talked about the exclusion that disabled people would say. He says, maybe not exclusion from the front of the bus, but perhaps from even climbing aboard it. Maybe not exclusion from pursuing advanced education, but perhaps from experiencing any formal education. Maybe not exclusion from day-to-day life itself, but perhaps from an adequate opportunity to develop and contribute to his or her fullest capacity. And I think that in and of itself was a, uh, 
was 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 a big part of who he who he was. But then he also opened with uh, he opened that speech, or or he was or he talked or he also included in that speech talking about vocational rehabilitation. And he talked about he told this really important story about a pair of a man who was a player paraplegic, and was referred to a state federal vocational rehabilitation office. And that allowed him to get an insurance, get a job as an insurance agent, have a home, adopt a child. And he says it takes place now because the Congress and the federal government initiated and guided a vital and guild and guild, guided a vital rigorous program of vocational rehabilitation. And I think that is what he saw is that he didn't want people to look up look with him upon pity, look upon him with pity. And I think I don't think any disabled person wants people to look upon them with pity. There's a whole book by Joe Shapiro that I have right here. It's called No Pity about the history of the disability rights movement. Um, uh, and it was very much, we don't want you to have pity on us. We want you to be to treat us as equals. And I think that for, I think a lot of liberals like that because liberals believe in the idea of civil rights for everyone. And I think a lot of conservatives could find things that they liked about what Bob Dole said, because it's not the government giving them a handout. And one thing I, I it's funny, I, was, I spent so much time in the New Republic writing about the bipartisan consensus on disability that I didn't stop to think, what actually was the bipartisan consensus on disability? So I'm going to say it right here, right now, what I think it is. The bipartisan consensus on disability was that if, that Conservatives said, okay, we are going to promote disability rights because then that way that allows disabled people to determine their own destiny. It gets them out of government-run state hospitals or state institutions and allows them to determine their own destiny by finding work, getting off government benefits, and you know, empowering themselves themselves. Liberals said, okay, we are going to give so that was the concession liberals going to give to conservatives. And in exchange, conservatives gave to liberals, we will give a group of people who have been historically marginalized special rights and or not special, I don't want to say, but encoded rights and protections so that they are not treated specially. That's why I took walk back on special, but we'll give them these rights and protections to ensure that they are that they have the equal opportunity in the eyes of the law and they have certain legal protections that ensure that their rights aren't violated. And that seemed to be the compromise that lasted, I would say from like the 1950s to the 1990s. Yeah. Eric Garcia, appreciate you so much. He reports for the independent. He's doing all kinds of uh, the Lord's work on all this complicated congressional stuff that's going on. So make sure you follow him. He's got a great book out. Uh, We're not broken. Uh, He did a nice long podcast with me. You want to go check that out, but let folks know about the book and where they can follow you and all your uh, machinations in the political realm, my friend. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, so so I actually, Andrew, you saw what I tweeted last night. So I'm going to just say it. Yeah, Uh, please. we're not broken, changing the autism conversation. So what happened is I was looking at the NYT bestseller list last night and I saw that Robert F. Kennedy, that jackass uh, who's been promoting anti-vaccine nonsense is on the New York Times bestseller list. So I'm doing a challenge right now that it, this week I'm turning 31. If it winds up the New York Times bestseller list this week, I'm going to get two tattoos. So, and it knocks out Robert F. Kennedy. I'll get two tattoos. So that's the plan. But otherwise than that, Andrew, it's always great being on the show. Yeah, we'll go do ink together because I'm overdue, even though you're 10 years younger than me, and I refuse to believe that. But you do great work, sir, and I greatly appreciate you. I look forward to talking to you again, my friend. Look forward to talking to you again. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to Herd Tell Radio. Um, among the other topics we touched today, I want to touch on 
uh, three stories of valor and honor of uh, people who uh, served our country with honor and will be receiving their nation's highest military honor. Um, from the Washington Post, the Biden administration is planning to award medals of honor to three U.S. soldiers who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, according to people familiar with the matter, a group that includes the first black service member to be recognized with the nation's top combat distinction for either conflict. The soldiers are Sergeant First Class Alan Cash, who suffered mortal injuries in Iraq while rescuing fellow soldiers from a burning vehicle in 2005. Master Sergeant Earl Plumley, a Special Forces soldier who fought off Taliban suicide bombers in Afghanistan in 2013. And Sergeant First Class Christopher Salise, an Army Ranger who died staffing between Taliban fighters targeting a U.S. helicopter evacuating his fellow soldiers in 2018. Recognizing for each the nation's highest for battlefield valor could happen as soon as December 16th. Four current and U.S. officials said they spoke on the condition of anonymity, anonymity, sorry, it's a Friday, ahead of the expected White House announcement. Now, uh, all these men need to be honored. Uh, Alan Cash, if you're not familiar with this story, um, it has been years getting this done. Uh, it is long overdue. Uh, he was uh, he died from his injuries uh, after the fact in 2005. Uh, this is long overdue. In fact, the officer who wrote the original commendation for him for a lower award even said he messed up and should have put it in as the Medal of Honor from the beginning. Uh, this has taken way, way too long. Our country should have honored this man years ago, uh, but finally it is getting done. He will be recognized and um if you don't know the story of him uh, and with respect to the other two gentlemen, but uh, I want to talk about Alan Cash for just a minute. Uh, he went, his vehicle was hit. He was covered in fuel. And knowing that he was covered in fuel, he went back repeatedly into a burning vehicle to rescue his fellow troops. Um, the amount of valor uh, the cost that it cost this man, he died uh, some weeks later in hospital. Uh, it's as brave as you can possibly be in a long history of our country of a lot of bravery. Um, he stands with all of those instances. And the fact that it took this long because of bureaucratic foul-ups and because of people, um, paperwork and other issues like this is uh, unacceptable. It should have already been done. But it is done. So we are finally going to get, as a nation, a chance to honor uh, Sergeant Cash. Um, and it's appropriate. And hopefully people will find the story. They will hear about it and understand what this man did for his fellow troops and for his country and honor him. Uh, also, just to repeat, uh, Master Sergeant Plumley and Sergeant First Class Salise are also getting medals of honor, well-deserved. Um, we don't we do the lip service of being thankful, but when it comes to people like this, um, please make sure you take a few extra minutes to not only read about them and to honor them, but to really honor them, you need to tell people about them and talk about them and say their names and tell your children about them. And you're, you know, when you're sharing your cat pictures and the, whatever the latest viral trend is, make sure you add this into your social media. Um, the things we have are because of people like that. And there's a lot of other people that go nameless and unrecognized. They need to be honored, at least in thought at the same time. But uh, three more medals of honor 
um, for the last few years of conflict. Uh, and I look forward to the president issuing those awards well-deserved to all those men and we honor their service. That'll do it for her tell for this Friday, December the 10th. Uh, we hope y'all have a good weekend. Uh, appreciated all the support uh, this first week that we've done Herd Tell Radio. Uh, you can reach us, uh, Herd Tell Show, on Twitter, herdtellshow at gmail.com. Uh, wherever you get this, whether it's on YouTube and you're watching, or if you're on any of the uh, podcasting platforms like iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or if you're listening through the streams with our partnership with Big Talker FM, uh, their Facebook page, whatever. Uh, leave a comment, uh, leave a rating. We'll try to get back to you and get you an answer. We appreciate all of those. That also lets other people know that our program is worth checking out. So we appreciate that. Don't forget the Hertel podcast, a little longer form program where we dig into topics of the news cycle to turn down the noise with knowledgeable guests and really dig into some things, uh, some really good stuff lately. Please check that out as well. And as always, you really want to do us a solid uh, share the program, Hertel Radio, Hertel Podcast. You can share that on your own social media. Tell a friend. We'd sure appreciate it. Let them know that uh, our program is worth their time because we don't ever want to waste their time. And uh, let them know it only costs them a click. Best deal going. Y'all have a great weekend. Wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you on Monday. Y'all take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.